to our 14th recording. This is Parsha Vayera. Joining us today again in studio is my co-host, Mr. R.J. Cox. R.J., would you like to tell everyone what Vayera is all about? Vayera is the second reading from the book of Exodus, the 14th reading from the Torah. Vayera means, and I appear. It comes from the first words of the second verse of the reading, which says, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, found in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. This portion begins with four expressions of redemption, whereby God promises to bring Israel out of the Egyptian bondage. The narrative progresses to tell the story of the first seven of the 10 plagues that God unleashed on Egypt. For the readings, the Torah portion is found in the book of Exodus chapter six, verse two from two, chapter nine, verse 35, the half Torah portion, book of Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 25, through chapter 29, verse 21, and the gospel, Brit Hadashah, New Testament reading, book of Luke, Chapter 11, verses 14 through 22. And now the blessing before the Torah study. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of the Torah. Amen. And we begin our Torah discussion. Um, Vayera. Um, how would you like to handle the discussion today? I think a lot of what you were saying this week revolved around the plagues and why things were done and how they related to the different deities that the Egyptians saw as their, for lack of a better phrase, their God. Um, do, what do you want to share today about that? Okay. Um, well, let me just start by saying the song that we played earlier at the beginning of our episode was um, Let My People Go by Louis Armstrong. Just want to give credit where credit is due. Um, I want to re, uh, share why I played that particular um, song at the beginning of the study. It's because the Torah portion today um, is really coming out of the end of last week's uh, Torah study of Parshat, where there was a, a moment that Moses comes and he's more or less saying like these people won't listen to me. And God answers him in the beginning of this Torah portion with, he appears and he says, by my name, um, I was not known to the, the patriarchs. But he's willing, he's now saying, I will make my name known. 
and Pharaoh is going to know. And so I want to kind of go into this Torah study with the command of what the song is really saying that by this they will know. And I I feel like the the prior Torah portion really kind of touched on so many different things that it's kind of always challenging to figure out like where what to kind of hyper focus on this particular week. And you're right, I did um want to talk about the four cups of salvation, which are um, pulled out of the first chapter, which is Exodus chapter six through um, chapter six, verse six through chapter six. I'm excuse me. Let's start again. Exodus chapter six, verse six through verse eight. However, um, I actually want to start just by reading the first few lines and then move into the discussion. So the first line reads, and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And the um, word there is the tetragrammaton, which is the yud He vav He. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, again, the tetragrammaton, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, again, the Tetragrammaton, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Louis Armstrong song was, as much as Moses was going to, you know, Pharaoh to demand that Egypt and the Egyptians let go of the Israelites, it seems that by reading just that introduction for this week's study, that what God was doing by sending Moses is by is also requiring the Egyptian mindset to let the people of Israel go, or trying to work out, get out from their mind the harshness, the the gods that they served in 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 Egypt, the position that they were in, the brokenness of their their spirit that they were in, as much as he was seeking to get them out of the land of Egypt, he was also seeking to get Egypt out of them. So I want to use that as the beginning for our discussion, and I'm going to use the table talk questions. 
from the uh, Hebrew for Christian site to kind of help guide a discussion today because I do see that there's some really great use um, here in understanding how to possibly review the study from a different perspective rather than my own. Um, because again, I, this is not my first time reading this. And secondly, what I feel is often missing is getting at the questions that sometimes when we're reading, we don't necessarily stop and ask ourselves what's going on here. So in that first portion, was there anything that you wanted to kind of touch bases on or, or review? That's chapter, Exodus chapter six, um, verses, I believe it was two, all the way to Exodus chapter six, verse nine. I don't know, not much. Uh, you mentioned about people having a broken, contrite spirit and heart. And sometimes I think that's necessary to recall and remember that we all go through something and because something is quickly realized, understood and accepted by one party, doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna be easy for the next person in line to grab hold and run with it. So I think it's a measure of grace and mercy of the Most High God to realize that these guys have been through a lot and it's gonna take a bit for them to sit there and walk this thing out by faith. You know, you got to go through all of those stages to get to the point where you can really understand what's happening, why it's happening, and see your place in all of it. You know, one teacher mentioned, and this is further along the chapter, but as you go into plagues, it wasn't a couple of days, it wasn't a week. This took the better part of a year to get through. And sometimes we forget that when dealing with other people that time helps. It's not always going to be as swift. And I think even going to the beginning of the chapter to answer your question again, the people were initially hesitant. They couldn't understand what their deliverer was saying to them. You know, it's, it takes a little bit of mind, heart connection to go, I get what's happening right here. So that was my two and a half cents. Okay. Well, your two and a half cents was much more valuable than that. And I feel that the, what you're saying is absolutely right. Um, one of the things that the commentaries reiterate and the uh, great teachers within um, the world of Torah study um, has shared with us this past week in reviewing this portion is that it did take much more than a year. Now, the question is, for somebody who's reading this for the first time, how did you know that it took longer than a year? And the, the first response to this was actually based on what transpires when Moses goes to the children of Israel and our last parsha, and he just speaks to Pharaoh. And remember that Pharaoh commands that when he goes in to speak with Pharaoh, um, that he increases the, um, the, the weight or the burden of the work. And if the requirement that Moses came to Pharaoh with was to let my people go so that they may go and worship before the Lord God, that he would remove the 
act of providing them with straw and that they would then have to go and get the straw themselves. And so the act of obtaining straw or collecting straw only could be provided during a certain season. And so it is inferred that this was happening during the, the first, you could say the first fruits, which is the barley harvest. And so this is the first fruits. They take the barley harvest and from the barley harvest, they get the straw for the bricks. Now, the, the act of figuring out how this transpired to be a year is also shared in the natural progression of what God used to be come the, the, the actual sequence of plagues. That's another way of expressing it because there was a natural sequence um, that if you reach uh, a lot more about Egyptology and Egypt history, that there was a normal uh, period that the Nile would actually run a type of color red um, and that there was a normal season, which in plague number two, that the frogs or whatever would normally come out from the, the Nile. And so utilizing the sequence of what would normally transpire in, you can say, Egyptian um, ecology, God uses to put a spin and diminish or destroy the um, belief system of Egypt in the same similitude, because even in, as we're getting to the plagues, and we haven't talked about them as yet, but as we get to the plagues, you're going to find that each one had a, a profound um, disconnect with what would have been considered normal. And by the disconnect of uh, what this was and how this was transpiring, it wasn't like they were all happening one behind the other. And I feel like the reading, at least from my understanding for so many years, is that that's what happened. You know, after this this week, here comes the next thing. And, you know, after this, you know, uh, plague was over, here comes another one. But it doesn't seem that that is exactly what transpired in the order of how it transpired. And it, it possibly gives more of a reason where this hardening of heart type of resistance to what God was commanding Pharaoh to do is also coming from. Can you imagine if you responded to a one-off, one-week occurrence to change what literally had been solidified over years? In the same way that God is being compassionate for those people in Israel who are coming out of this burden, he's drawing them out from the burden of slavery, so too is it hard and difficult for someone who has been grown and grafted into this, especially for the one who thinks he's God, to the people. So imagine if he was to have just said, you know, this one and done. But the questions there still remains, why did God use 10 plagues? Why does he use 10? Um, and, and so in reviewing each one of these plagues, I hope that this Torah study helps to not only discuss what happened in the history of Israel, but also what's also happening right now, even in the history of mankind and what is to come from what God has declared by utilizing the Israelites to teach us 
the instructions for how to live today. So as we move into the next set of verses, Exodus chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, um, it seems that it, it says, that the, so the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and let the people of Israel go out of this land. That's what he goes in and says. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Another uh, version says I'm slow of speech. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so this kind of, there's a break in chapter six. And then it goes into the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And from a lot of people, I think they often think, why did it stop right there? Why are we jumping back into this genealogy that was kind of discussed in the last week's Torah portion? Why do we go back into it in this um, sequence? Are you familiar with what I'm referring to? No. Okay. So in verses, verses chapter six, verses uh, 14 to verse 30, it goes back into the sequence of, you can say the, the fathers of uh, Moses and Moses's, you could say uncles then, that, that entire lineage. And it begins first by talking about these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. And these are the sons of Simeon. And these are the sons of, um, these are the names of Levi. And these are the sons of, um, Levi's one of Levi's sons, specifically the sons of Gershon. And it, it goes, basically, it's delineating the genealogy of Moses. But you know what it, I thought was very interesting, even though it does delineate how Moses and Aaron came to be, meaning who was their parents, um, how did how are they related? It also goes into the cousins of Moses because it goes into the sons of Ishor. And one of the sons of Ishor, which we're going to learn about in Leviticus and Numbers, is Korak. And it says, you know, he's a son of Ishor, but it doesn't go through all of the sons of uh, of uh, Amram's brothers, for example. Amram's brothers, according to verse 18, was a son of Kohath. And the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, they don't go into all of the sons of Kohath's children. They only go into the ones that we're going to learn about that were either directly connected to Moses and Aaron, meaning who was Aaron's wife, who was Moses's parents. And then it goes into the lineage of the people that are connected to Moses and Aaron, um, namely um, his sister and the people that are going to more or less rise up against Moses in future chapters. And then it goes back to the story of um, future books then. And then it goes right back into him going into Pharaoh. So it's very odd, but it's the sequence is there to kind of give two reasons. And that it's kind of connected to what was the weakness that um, 
Moses said before, where he says, he specifically says, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And the genealogy is like giving, um, think about all the other genealogies. We have a genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament. We have a genealogy of John the Baptist before he's born. The genealogies are not there um, for the purpose of, of um, qualifying the call. It is really to, I'm sorry, I messed up saying that, I'm messing up the saying. How does the saying go? God doesn't call the qualified. God doesn't call the qualified. That's what it is. God does not call the qualified. So in other words, if you look at the history, you would think, okay, why did why wasn't Moses from the line of Judah, for example, because they were supposed to be the kings, right? At least according to the scriptural blessing that was given by Jacob. They were supposed to be the king, kingly line. Um, the scepter should not depart from, you know, that that family. Why is it that it's coming through one of the sons of Levi or one of the sons of um, Reuben or one of the sons of Simeon that were related to one of? Why is why all of this? And it's kind of going back to God is qualifying the call in Moses. He's like, I selected him. I'm putting the charge. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's so funny that when you see the genealogy here and you compare it to the end of um, Deuteronomy, where um, you assume that it's Moses writing the book of Deuteronomy and he literally declares himself to be like the meekest person on the earth. You're like, how could it be the same person? Who, you know, how meek could you really be that you compare yourself on one side, you know, God is qualifying the call, and in Deuteronomy, I'm the meekest person in the earth, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, it's kind of going back to, like, what God has destined and called you for. No man can, you know, put us under. He can't, you can't refrain the gift and the gifting that he's placed on within this earthen vessel. And so even still, regardless of how the lineage is connected, and it should have, you could say, well, it's connected by, um, uh, con- connected through marriage, through the Le- Levitical line, or it's connected, um, see here, it's connected by um, descendants through this person and that person. It's still God qualifying a specific person. And remember that Korach, which is the reason that I think it's mentioned here that Korach was his cousin, you can say that he was part of the line too. So why wouldn't God have qualified him or called him to be qualified? And this is the charge that comes up in Leviticus as well later on, because the question was asked, why would you choose me? I'm, I, you know, I have, you know, I'm of uncircumcised lips or I'm circumcised lips or I'm slow to speech. Why, why me? That's what he's basically saying. Why would anybody listen to me? And God is saying, no, I'm qualifying you. I'm qualifying this um, this to be my man of God. All right, moving on. So we go into chapter seven. Go down, Moses. Moses goes. He speaks to um, Pharaoh. Let my people go. And the first thing that Mer- Mo- uh, Pharaoh says to him is that I will. N- Pharaoh will not listen to you. This is actually God telling Moses before he goes in to speak with him. Pharaoh will not listen to you. But then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So when Moses goes in and goes in with Aaron to speak with Pharaoh, and 
Pharaoh first asked the first thing, which is to prove, you know, what you got to say by a miracle. And this is the first instance where it's not a plague, mm -hmm. but it is the first instance where we hear of Moses and Aaron kind of showing and proving that they, they've been called. Okay. So they take the, the they take the staff and they cast it down before Pharaoh, just like they had more or less rehearsed it with the Lord. Mm -hmm. And it says that just like how it had been rehearsed before, it becomes a serpent, in, at least in the English translation. Right. Um, uh, Pastor Mark Fields points out that there's two different Hebrew words here. The first time that they had thrown it down when they were um, in the wilderness and they were speaking to the Lord and it became a serpent, that is, I think it was nafshi. And the word here is not nafshi, it's a different word. And it, it really is a word that is declaring that it actually became much more of a crocodile. This is why there's a difference in um, how it is how it pertains but nonetheless mm -hmm. the story goes and it continues that as they throw it on these their staff the it, it, pharaoh's magicians decide that well whatever you can do we can do better mm -hmm. they throw down theirs it, it, it also becomes serpents but it says that um the staff of moses i mean staff of aaron basically eats up theirs and then returns to the returns after having swallowed up their staffs, it returns to a staff in Aaron's hand. Mm -hmm. um, but he, seeing all of this, Pharaoh's heart was still hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then it says that the first plague, um, which is the now turning to blood, happens when the Lord speaks to Moses to go and meet um, uh, Pharaoh at the Nile. Okay, so this week we were um, kind of exposed to something that I had never seen before. Tell me if you had, which is the plagues being in groups. Yeah, I have not seen that before. Okay. Um, would you like to share? I don't have that rehearsed, so by all means, go ahead. Give me an overview. Okay, from what I understood that uh, the plagues, all the plagues, that are going to transpire not only do they happen over a period of a year which we now understand they also transpire in sequences where there's group there's three different groups there's group one group two and group three um a group one plague is one where moses oftentimes goes down and he speaks to pharaoh generally by the nile a group two plague is where Moses and Aaron generally go before Pharaoh in his palace. And a group three plague is generally one that is not declared at all. It's like the consequence of not having listened to the group one group and group two plagues. So the group three plague would normally happen. All right. So if you were to kind of go back and, and, and put them all into sequence, group one plagues are number one, the first plague, the fourth plague, and I guess that would be the seventh plague. Yeah, if I'm doing the numbering correctly. And then you would have the group two plagues being number two, number four, and then number, I'm thinking, I may have to write this down just to get the numbers sequence correctly. But nonetheless, you get what I'm saying, each one um, is in this sequence 
All right, so we had a little bit of technical difficulties there. We're just going to pick back up from where we left off. So there's three groups, and the groups are group one plagues are where Moses and Aaron tend to meet um, Pharaoh at the Nile. Group two plagues is where Moses and Aaron tend to meet Pharaoh at the um, in the palace. Um, and then group three plagues are like consequence. They tend to happen right thereafter um, as a result of disobeying in the group one and two plagues. So in order of number, all group one plagues are plague one, four, and seven. Group two plagues are plague two, five, and eight. And group three plagues are group um, excuse me, plague number three, number six, and number nine. And then the tenth plague being separate from all others because that was much more of a final um, final plague, more or less, to ensure that this last god, this last area um, had been conquered over the Egyptians. So that did not fit the same sequence as one through nine. All right, so this Torah portion does go over seven of those plagues. Would you like to touch bases on any of the seven plagues? Um, I know people are very fond of the one with the frogs because they just think of all of these different amphibians hopping all over the place. Uh, for me, I always... um. I didn't have a quote-unquote favorite one. I didn't have one that stuck out more than any others. How about you? Um, it It's different in, um, I don't know if I can say favorite. I think the issue for me when it comes to the plagues, when I review it every single year, is the order I've always questioned until this year where I found out that there was a, simil a similitude to the natural nature's progression within the climate of Egypt to some of these plagues. So that that gave me like a, a light bulb moment. Oh, so there was some type of connection. It wasn't random. Um, the issue with the plagues, and I think for me, and one of the reasons that I, I do take pause and I want to kind of share a, a perspective that if you've never um, done Passover before, um, during the Passover Haggadah service, there is a process where the 10 plagues are recounted and a little bit of your your wine or your, your juice is poured out for each one of the plagues because it is recounted not by virtue of, aha, we overcame and, you know, they they were punished by the, at the hand of God, but by their suffering you know, God brought about our redemption and that we should not revel. We should not be excited when anyone has to suffer under that level of sacrifice. So for me, when it comes to the plagues, I am much more aware in a, a spiritual and I would say even a realistic perspective of what it must have felt like to have been an Egyptian as well as what it must have felt like to be an Israelite. Because you know, as an Egyptian, this is coming to you as a result of some act of God at, um, judging 
our people. Mm -hmm. But on the opposite end, as an Israelite, think about how it looks within the scope of the world when people are suffering and you can you know that they're suffering. You you are not you, you your heart is naturally if you have unless there's something wrong with you, even when they are hurtful and they've been they've wronged you, you naturally are not like ha ha you know you're not that is not normally uh, you still take compassion you still pity them, hmm. and I think the the act of reviewing the plagues from a perspective of when God is judging mankind, even our um, prophetic books speak of the final judgment. There's going to be similar plagues that are going to hit the earth. As much as these people have been blind and they've acted evil towards the word of God and the people of God, I don't necessarily see, you know, millions of people dying as or being millions of people suffering as aha you know let me point the finger and laugh it's still a very grave thing and from my perspective maybe it's uh you know some people tend to think you know you take compassion for foolishness but i really do pity them because i don't believe most people are even aware of the gravity of their actions until they feel the weight of the outcomes. They're not fully aware of, well, this brought me to this this outcome until the judgment has shown up. And so for me, I'm I pity and um I'm I I sorrow, I have some sorrow. You can say sweet sorrow because it's bringing my redemption, but I also sorrow in the fact that they could not also experience the redemption hmm. and the promise of the redemption because it was available to them. And I think in we as we look through these plagues and we see that some of the Egyptians are going to hear when Moses says the next plague is coming, um, especially in this Torah portion, and when the, the plague of the hail is coming, the people, they were given a fair warning and they could get their animals and their, you know, livestock to safety and some listened and then some didn't mm -hmm. and those are the things that i'm just like okay at some point you have to realize that's exactly what's happening with the plan of salvation for the world there's some of us that's going to be you know thinking oh, okay here comes that doomsday or again they are always constantly talking about you know the end is coming the end is near i'm not listening until the plague start to show up and some people will turn and then others will still be hard-hearted and not turn away. From, mm -hmm. They will not repent. And I don't think that that's anything to revel over. So that's number one from my perspective when I think of the plates in general. So none of them specifically are more noteworthy than the other, but all collectively, all of them is an act of God trying to like all things that he's trying to do is really bring us to repentance, bring us to the place where he's using the things that we have that's clouded our vision, that have blinded us to the truth of who he is, mm -hmm. and he's trying to remove it. And because some of us have become so enslaved to a system of feeding our flesh, mm -hmm. 
we're not even aware that that's what this is all about. So if we start with the, the first one, which is the, the Nile, the, the blood, the, excuse me, the Nile being turned to blood, that was definitely something that was extreme because people can't, ex can't what is it, the, the scientific statement is that they can't ex um, exist for more than three days without water. Hmm. And so the plague itself says that the water um, in the, the Nile turned red, but also even the water within any pitcher. Right. So they had no water to drink for the entire period that this particular plague was happening. And then what does it mean when the Egyptian magicians decide to duplicate it? Aren't you just adding to the misery? What is this that you're duplicating? Each plague, they, they wanted to see, you know, who's more, who knows more secret arts. And I just felt like, are you relieving anything? No, we were adding to the problems of the people with all of their quote unquote secretive arts. So that's what I saw in the first group, uh, not the first group in the same seg seg uh, way of thinking about it of similarities, but in plague one through three, I just kept on seeing these magicians keep on adding to the problem. Right. Yeah, and it just felt like, how could they continue to not see that you replicating the plague is not benefiting anyone? You can't revert it. So I would have sat down after the first one. These people kept on trying and just making the situation worse. So those are more so what I'm thinking about. Like mankind can see a problem, but instead of trying to correct their behavior that's causing the problem they're going to come up with some ingenious situations and some imaginations to say well we can do what you can do better which is only going to bog down and harm the same people that they should have been trying quote unquote to help but it really doesn't seem like they were there to help it was all about pride how about you what are you getting from the plagues I think you said it spot on. Um, to break down a lot of the defenses that we have in our lives, we've got to take down these former strongholds. And so they weren't concerned about the suffering of the people as much as they were concerned about how do I still show that I have dominance over this situation? And that's really as simple as it is. Um, that's all I've got. So the, from plague one, I'm just going to read exactly just a quick overview. The first plague is the plague of blood, which we already know. Um, Aaron stretches out his hand over the rivers. He stretches it out over the canals, over the pools. Um, actually, that's the plague of frogs. Excuse me. He stretches out the first his hand over the Nile first, and then it turns to blood. And it says the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank. Um, and so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout the land, all the land of Egypt. So this is like one of the plagues, which I thought was very interesting. The first three plagues seemingly happened throughout all of Egypt, but then four through 10 did not happen in the land of Goshen, except, well, four through nine did not happen in the land of Goshen. Right. Um, so that was very interesting. So all Egyptians, and to a degree, because 
Israelites are in the land of Israel. I mean, they're not in the land of Israel. They're also in the land of Egypt. They also experience this plague. Um, and so it says that they did it with their secret arts. And um, they went to the Egyptians, magicians, uh, did the same thing. They're with their secret heart, secret art, excuse me. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen. Um, and Pharaoh turned, went to his house. He did not even take this to his heart, take to heart what the people were suffering. That's one of the things I remember from last week or last year was how many times it kept on saying that he didn't take it to heart. So you are a leader over people. Think about, you know, we just saw this movie just the other day um, on Netflix, which I thought was sh completely strange and ridiculous. But it was, um, what's the name of that movie? I don't remember which um, movie you're talking about. The one with the, the, jeez, uh, the comet is coming to Earth. Oh, Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up, yes. And it's it basically states that the supposed um, president at that time is basically getting the warning that this is about to happen and people on the entire Earth are going to perish. And the leader could care less. What they're most concerned about is their ratings, um, getting reelected, um, whether or not people find out the dirt that's in their closet, um, whether or not they can make money off of this. That's what they're more concerned about. Not the fear, the dread, the concern of the people, not trying to save humanity. But this leader is more concerned about my perception, my belief, my resistance to be humbled. That's what you were describing to me, at least. Right. So what type of leader is this for the Egyptians that he could care less? And it seems like even more so that this act of defiance had the people of the, the Egyptians without water for seven days. How many people may have died in addition to the, you know, the fish having no water? Right. So they must have had, they must have tried to utilize other things to replace the water, maybe, you know, plants or things of that nature, just to have something right. to retain um, the, the life-giving force that water brings. And so it says after seven days, the plague passed. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it's so was the, the custom with all of group one plagues, that's plague one, four, and seven, that it generally lasted a week. Right. Okay. And so second plague, frogs. And it, the, the plague of the frogs comes. It comes upon everything and everyone. It's in the ovens. It's in the kneading bowls. That particular plague, um, the magicians, again, they, they duplicate it, making it more, you know, more frogs everywhere. So the, <laughs> the frogs are in the courtyards. They're in the fields. They're everywhere. The thing that was interesting about this particular plague that I did not know is this is the only plague that really did not go away. It remained. And so how do we know this? It is not by virtue of the commentary. It's actually in the scriptures that once God, um, Moses said to Pharaoh, actually when um, Pharaoh uh, calls Moses back uh, and he cries to, um, he asks him to take away the frogs. It says in verse 11, the frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your peoples. 
they shall be left only in the Nile. So that this was the one plague that left a, a constant reminder of its uh, actions. So these millions and millions and millions of frogs that came up on, onto the earth now were just in the Nile. Hmm. So that was very interesting. Again, reading it again, new year, new, new insights. Um, and they said that so many frogs had died that they gathered them in heaps and the land stank. So the land stunk, stank <laughs> from the, the fish that all had died and all the blood that was um, on the earth from the Nile being turned to blood. And then with the frogs, I'm just thinking both occurrences, it stunk afterwards. So if you are a, and, and Egypt definitely was and, and continued to be for many generations, a port for the economic systems and economies, imagine how many places and people are not coming to you when your entire land is stinking. <laughs> um, you know, whatever they got, I don't want. So there was definitely a, a, like this entire people were being cut off. Right. Um, from the entire world. So the fourth plague is the plague of flies, um, flies, gnats, swarms. And it says that, um, again, with these magicians, <laughs> um, it says, and the houses of the Egyptians filled with the swarms of flies. Uh, and on that day, you know, when Pharaoh decided that he was not going to um, let the people go, uh, he, all of this happened. And it says that uh, in verse 24, and the Lord uh, sent this swarm um, even into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants throughout all the land of Egypt. And the, the land was ruined by the swarms on that fourth plague. And I believe on the fourth plague, this is one where the magicians did not duplicate. They did not duplicate the, the flies. Okay. okay. And it says that Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. He said, go sacrifice to your God. Always um, some type of uh, request, but not the full um, repentance of exactly what the Lord asks for. It's like a negotiation. So either come back and I'll negotiate with you. I'll negotiate. Okay, 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 okay. So you, you twist in my hand. You can go sacrifice to your God within the land. Um but Moses said, it's not right that we do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord. Our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord. Our God, as he tells us And Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord in the wilderness. Only you must not go far away. Plead for me. So once Moses, of course, hears this, he pleads for him. The Lord retracts the swarm of flies. They depart from Moses. Um, and it says in verse 31, and the Lord did as Moses asked. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. But in verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Right. We now know that he is continues. It goes into the livestock dying in the fifth plague. Um, and with the livestock dying, this is the group of two type plague. And so with the livestock, the hand of the Lord fell and a severe plague came on the livestock that are in the field, the, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and all the flocks. 
but the Lord made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing at all that belonged to the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent a word again, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead when he checked, but yet the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people go. The sixth plague, which is this circumstantial one where there is no warning then, so to speak. The sixth plague, which is a group three plague, is the plague of boils. Mm-hmm. You know, it says the Lord rises Moses early in the morning. He says, present yourself before Pharaoh, say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Of course, he says he will not. And then the boils um, break out. Okay. And this particular one um, was so heavy. Excuse me. I actually ran into the seventh plague. I'm sorry. He said, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become a fine dust, and that's, that dust became boils. And it says the magicians could not stand be- before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians also and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen. So there must have been a period of time. And again, this is happening, this is not happening one day after the other. So it's not like they're having the boils while they're experiencing the livestock dying. Mm-hmm. So imagine the compounded you know, pangs of loss that the people are going through. Now you're stricken in your body with these boils. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, this is going on for a period of time because it doesn't say how long this boils persisted. Um, But again, this is the outcome. This is the group three plague, the outcome plague for the other two not being, um, him not holding fast to his word in what he said in after plague, four and five, which he said, I will let them go. And then he said, no, I ain't letting them go. Um, So now we're into the seventh plague, which is a group one plague, which is hail. And this particular plague is one where it is thunder, hail, fire coming down onto the earth. It is ice and fire together hitting the earth. And it says that this came with a warning. And the people that were warned and heard the warning um, list and listened to the warning basically removed their livestock, their animals away from the field. And it says the, the hail that struck, struck everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. So only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And it says even more so that this is the plague where Pharaoh repents and he says, I have sinned. Okay. Okay? That's what I want to come to get to. And I'm going to stop with our discussion in this particular plague because this is also the last plague for (laughs) this. Um, Well, Parsha. In plague seven, the hail, Pharaoh says, I've sinned. The... Overview that I've heard was that this one plague was the one thing that he could not reckon. He could not understand how, um, he could not rationalize them. He could not reason away how this came to be. And more so than that, the sequence of, again, this is the um, a, a plague that came with a warning 
came with notification that this is coming as a result of him having uh, repetitively not let the people go as he has required of him. Mo and then when it falls and it strikes everything um, on the land of Egypt, it says that most, I mean, Pharaoh recognizes something and he gives maybe a half-hearted, you know, repentant cry. But nonetheless, this is the first time ever anywhere recorded that he actually repents to some degree. And he says, I have sinned and he calls the Lord righteous. The Lord is righteous, but I and my people, we're in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for us. Mm -hmm. So in this, there is um, a... A discussion that what causes him to come to this revelation was he could not reason away how hail could come down with ice and fire. Mm -hmm. How could the two um, completely contrary forces come together in nature as one and destroy at this level to see this you can say like the, the breaking of nature's laws being made manifest before his own eyes. He could not rationalize away. He could not um, diminish or minimize. And that broke what most people oftentimes are not willing to see in those instances of, we call them momentary um, discomforts. So for him... The first six plagues were just momentary. They were for a period of time, but they were momentary. Mm -hmm. And they could be rationalized as this is what normally happens in a bad year, for example. Mm -hmm. But when it came to this particular one, the one that literally broke to his understanding what is possible according to the laws of nature, mm -hmm. that broke his willingness and his understanding of calling himself God mm -hmm. and his people relying on him as God because there's nothing that he could even come close to doing that could create what the creator has just refashioned in his sight and in the sight of all his people. Mm -hmm. So in the seventh plague, what do you see and why do you think um, Pharaoh gives this repentant call? You know, the Lord is righteous, but I'm, I and my people are wicked. I think a lot of what you said there is spot on. I think it also gets to the point where you just get beat down by the severity of it all. It's a lot that's going on. And over the time and the crop failures and all the different results of what's happened as these plagues have gone on, maybe you just got to the point where it was just enough. Uh, Okay, I surrender. I give up. I quit. I'm done. But, you know, unfortunately, we know that next week's portion's got three more plagues, so maybe he didn't have enough forever, just enough for the moment. But we'll see. Mm. And just to kind of end with this seventh plague, most people tend to ask the question, why ten? Right. You know, why couldn't God, if God knew that, you know, he knows everything, he's a creator, he knows he said he created this Pharaoh to declare his glory, to, to show forth, you know, who he is in the, in this, in the world and to the Egyptians. And if he knew that this, sev this seventh one was going to bring 
into repentance, why didn't you just start with the seventh one? <laughs> why why wait? And if you knew that the tenth one was going to be the, the one that would let the people go, why not start with the tenth one? Mm. Um, and it's interesting because the, the question is also reminiscent of why you what you said earlier, like when God is trying to bring us out of our Egypt, why doesn't he just, you know, kind of declare the thing? You know, you know what's going to reach us. Why don't you just start with that? Because it, as you said, it's a, it's a process. And so too is the process of salvation. There is a process. He doesn't do something that breaks our will and removes our choices. He literally maintains our will, maintains our choice. And so too, even with the words that people would say, well, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God, no, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh took his will, took his choices and said, you know, based on what I know, this is how I want to perceive it. This is how I'm going to reframe this. This is how I'm going to resolve this in my heart. And that is also true of us during our salvation work, walk and work. We're walking and working out our salvation, but there's still so much work of the world in us that it doesn't just come out just because we made a decision that we're going to give our lives to the Lord. There's a process of what we think is normal needs to be recorrected. What God can and is willing to do needs to be redefined. It, why would God be concerned? He's a creator of everything. Why would he be concerned just about me specifically needs to be recorrected? You know, we have our perceptions and beliefs. And I think if you look at how he is utilizing the Egyptians as a, a means to bring deliverance, he also is utilizing the, the Israelites and their awakening to what's possible as Adonai, as the Lord, the Tetragrammaton name here, as what's possible which their forefathers did not know. They didn't know him to be this type of God that would intervene in the lives of, you would say, natural occurrences. They didn't know him to be that God that would say, I will deliver you with my strong arm. Oftentimes you could say many of the things that they were delivered from were by virtue of, con you know, what a coincidence. God changed his heart. What a coincidence. These people didn't come after and try to murder us after we killed you know, the people of the, Sh the Shechemites, what a coincidence. You know, you never saw, except for the one instance that you have with um, the earlier, with um, Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, but those were the angels specifically. There was, you know, but God himself intervening like that, they didn't, they didn't know it like that. They didn't know him to be like that. So when God is now physically intervening in the lives of all these people of Israel, I can definitely see them questioning and saying, is he willing to do that and more? And he did this. He did first plague, second plague, third plague, fourth plague. And still, we're still coming into understanding what he, how much more, you know, and, and, and during the Passover Seder, we say, you know, we say at the end of the Dayenu song, you know, if God had just, you know, done plague number one, maybe that would have been enough. If he had just done plague number 10, maybe that would have been enough. But he gives us all of these opportunities and all of these ways that he intervenes in our human relationships and our human um, experience. And it 
it's teaching us and, and pulling and grabbing our attention to the truth of who he is, but more so of what he's offering to all of us. He wants a relationship with all of us, and he's not trying to destroy us to get it. He's really seeking that we would come to repentance, that all would come to repentance. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, the reason why God did not ex just exterminate Pharaoh and the Egyptians, because he didn't want to destroy them. What is your reasoning? I think that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of difficult to have people repent and worship you if you kill them all. And secondly, if your act is one of kindness and reconciliation, once again, killing them doesn't bring that to you. But showing over periods of time, hey, this is why this is an error. This is why this can be an error. Think about this. Work on that. What about this? The realization, the eye opening starts to happen as the scripture says, the scales get lifted off your eyes. And it's a process. Um, and there's a patience behind it because, as you can see, it took Pharaoh 10 plates before he, it finally got to the finish line. So that is, that's my thoughts. Mm-hmm. So we end this week um, with just a, a, a brief overview. Um, we're praying that this was a blessing in our study being shared with you. And RJ, do you have any final words to share regarding just what redemption means to you and what you gained from our study this week? I think it's exactly what I just said a moment ago. It's a process. It's... As much as everyone feels that instant potatoes needs to be made out of this thing, I, I walked down the aisle, I shook the pastor preacher's rabbi's hands, I said yes to God, poof, let life be changed. There's a process, and sometimes it's frustrating to ourselves, to the people around us, because they don't understand why certain things take some time to give yourself the grace to know that step by step, moment by moment, if you keep walking forward, and sometimes you're gonna stumble, the redemption, the promise, the future promise will be seen. And sometimes you've gotta do it in spite of the fact that you're the only one that's doing it. Um, some people just don't see the change in you. No matter what you say, no matter what flags you wave, they're not seeing this redemption. And sometimes you look at yourself in the mirror and go, how am I different? I'm just older. Trust the process. It may seem longer than you have imagined. It may seem slower than you imagine. It may seem like you're going backwards sometimes. But trust that it will bring yourself its full good. Okay. So just to summarize, um, we've kind of gone over a lot in this Torah portion. And I want to bring it back to the Passover Seder that's coming up in 10 weeks. And during the Passover Seder, there's generally four cups that we drink of. Um, there's a cup of sanctification, the cup of uh, praise, the cup of redemption, and the cup of acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, each one is tied directly to the, the promises that were declared in Exodus chapter 6 verses six through eight. 
there is still a promise that is outside of that and it is i will bring you to i will cause you to be my people and i will be your god and i will give you the land of your inheritance those are the promises of exodus 6 verse 9. and oftentimes when you end the passover haggadah there's generally a fifth cup that we set aside and we're waiting for Elijah to come um, because Elijah declares the way of the return of the Messiah. And what I am doing in part and prayerfully you all collectively are doing as a whole is contributing to the work of Elijah, um, clearing the pathway, making straight the way um, st stating to the world that our king does reign and he will reign forevermore. And we're opening the pathway not only for King Messiah to come, but also for all those inhabitants on the earth to return to him. And so I pray that you will receive that cup where God, um, first of all, has offered redemption to you so that you can walk this process process of this sanctification which is you know the enlightening of our eyes the light of his truth giving us the hope the will the uh, empowerment to walk step by step this truth out in our lives and in the lives of the world with that in the lives of our worldly experiences you know i pray that we would you know be so encouraged that we will you know, declare his glory and his praise in our work and our our efforts um, as we provide service to mankind in whatever aspect that we have been called to um, nurture and to, to work in, in the field that we've been called to. And may we offer the word that redemption is nigh um, to man, boy, girl, you know, everyone that we meet, because truthfully, our God does reign and he desires to have communion with us. And that comes with destroying the hand of bondage on our hearts and our minds, destroying the mindsets that have tied us into lack and limitations and um, just enough or not having anything. He came to destroy all of those things and to return us to the the world where he's created all things and has prepared all things for us. And so part of that redemption is kind of grabbing hold and encouraging and challenging other people when they do not desire to leave Egypt or they do not see where Egypt is in them. That is still part of the call. Redemption, sanctification, all part of this process but sometimes you have to bring light where darkness is and you may not feel encouraged doing so in those moments but do recognize that that too is part of the call you're bringing the light of torah the light of his truth into dark places and you're not going to be celebrated you're not always going to get a pat on the back that is still part of the process and then there's a cup of praise i am um, excuse me, not a cup of praise, but a cup of acceptance. For God to be our king and for us to be his people, we also have to accept it. We have to accept what he's offered. I pray that we will find acceptance in 
what God has provided to us. And we are growing from level to level um, in discovering who we are and who he is in us and in the light of the world. No matter what the news is declaring, no matter what that um, machine wants to produce, there still is a voice, a clarion call, a shofar that has already declared from the beginning what the end is going to be. And that end is salvation. And he has declared that you are my people and I will be your God. And so there's certainty in that. There's certainty that you can hold your your hand to and there you can literally you know hang your hat on. Do trust in the Lord your God with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. And in all your ways as you acknowledge him, he will direct your path. Shalom. So as we conclude this podcast episode, we always encourage those that are listening to like, share, subscribe, and continue the dialogue with us. By all means, please feel free to share any of these sessions with anyone within your circle and those that you meet. May we all be enlightened by our studying together and learning of the word. And to reach us, our website is return.rest and email is call to the number two at return.rest. So by all means, send your questions, your comments, your thoughts. Let's see what we can do to keep making this something of great value to each other. And as we close, we will close with the Etzkayim prayer. Etzkayim hi. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are praiseworthy. Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. Bring us back, Lord, to you, and we shall come. Renew our days as of old. Shalom, y'all.